Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash EDH. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Exalexis and Merck. Welcome to this peer voice panel discussion on renal cell carcinoma. This activity comprises three presentations featuring doctors Brian Reaney and Vincent Chu and patient advocate Meryl Oranga. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hi, my name is Brian Reaney from Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center in the Division of Hemoc at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in the United States. And joining me is my esteemed colleague, Vincent Chu, from the Link Center for Geo-Oncology at Dana-Farber at Harvard Medical School. Uh, Vincent, thanks Hello. for joining. Thanks so much, Dr. Reaney. Today, we're going to talk about um, broadly the management of advanced kidney cancer and some recent data around doublets and triplets uh, and also belzutifan. So a lot of novel therapy coming in in advanced kidney cancer. We're going to try and cover the waterfront in terms of what's new uh, in this space. Before we go into sort of the new, new drugs and new trials, um, kidney cancers had a lot of advances over the last two decades. Um, there have been uh, targeted therapies developed, mostly VEGF-targeted therapies initially, uh, then the immune therapy era began, gosh, now almost 10 years ago. We've sort of rapidly moved into this era of immune-based doublets, which are the current frontline standard of care. And then as we'll talk about, we're moving, I think, into another area potentially of triplets and also of, of novel mechanisms such as belzutifan, which is a HIF inhibitor. So there have been a number of frontline immune-based trials in kidney cancer. Some have involved um, just giving a single immune drug like Keno-427. Um, these are single-arm trials, so no large randomized trials with frontline IO monotherapy. But largely, they've been immune-based doublets, so a PD-1 inhibitor plus either a CTLA-4 inhibitor, such as the Ipinevo regimen, which has the longest follow-up data and has been a standard of care for some time now, or one of three uh, IO-TKI regimens, which adds a VEGF-TKI to a PD-1 inhibitor. Um, and the three regimens are uh, Axipembro, Cabonevo, and Lenpembro, and we'll, we'll sort of talk about the pluses and minuses of each. So uh, maybe, Vincent, let's just start with sort of the big picture of where we've come in kidney cancer compared to VEGF monotherapy. What sort of impact have these doublets had on patients? Thanks, Brian. I think what we've seen consistently across phase three randomized trials is that doublets whether that's an IO-IO doublet, such as Ipinevo, or an IO-TKI doublet, including Axipembril, Cabonevo, Lenpembril, and even more recently, Toripalumab plus Axitinib, which was just presented at ESMO. All the doublets have consistently shown progression-free survival and overall survival benefit compared to single-agent sunitinib. So to me, the biggest take-home message has been that most patients should be receiving doublet therapies in the first-line setting, with a very few exceptions. And when we look specifically at the combination immunotherapies versus the IOTKI combinations, the main distinction I've seen is that while both have overall survival benefit, the short-term overall response rates are higher for the IOTKI combinations, whereas there might potentially be a signal of durability for the IOIO doublet. When we think about quality of life, Many of these combinations can improve quality of life, especially in patients who have symptoms from their disease and have reduction in their disease burden. Specifically, many of these phase three trials had quality of life built into the analysis, 
and both Ipinevo and Cabonevo showed significant improvements in quality of life for the combination arm compared to Sunitnib, while the other combinations showed either um, stable quality of life or at least no detriment compared to Sunitnib. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about optimizing therapy with triplets. So we're oncologists. We like to give more drugs if possible. Multi-agent chemotherapy is how we've cured other solid tumors such as uh, germ cell tumor. And we've had some forays into triplet therapy and kidney cancer. And the first was Cosmic 313. It's the first uh, and as yet only triplet study to be reported. In kidney cancer, as you know, it's uh, a, a backbone of ipinevo, which you talked about, and adding in cabozantinib to the triplet arm or placebo to the doublet arm. So ipinevo versus ipinevo cabo. <clears throat> this was reported about a year ago at ESMO. And what was seen was a small progression-free survival advantage. I don't think this was surprising. Anytime you have a VEGF TKI in your regimen and in one regimen and not the other, you're going to get response rate advantages and PFS advantages, as, as you alluded to with the other doublets. Um, so I think this was sort of expected. Uh, there was no overall survival advantage. So in Cosmic 313, we mentioned increased toxicity in the triplet arm, uh, especially elevations in liver enzymes. And this has been seen in some of the doublets with IOTKI and in this triplet, um, grade three or four in 20 or 25% of patients. So this is something that I think is relevant to clinical practice and, and was limiting in this study. And I think um, maybe just to go a bit into toxicity, and then I'll ask you to comment. Uh, this was a very toxic regimen, not surprisingly. So almost 60% of the triplet patients needed high-dose steroids, which is quite high. If there's great advantages to a regimen, then, then certainly that might be worth it. But with a small PFS advantage, I think the take-home point, at least in my opinion for this trial, was that it's a pretty toxic regimen. It limited the amount of drug that could be given in the triplet and probably affected the efficacy outcomes, which were uh, not significantly in favor of the triplet arm. So, so Mitzen, how did you sort of take Cosmic, uh, you know, in total? Absolutely, Brian. I agree with what you pointed out, just that I think toxicity really limited the medication exposure on the triplet arm. And in theory, if all patients could tolerate it be Nevo and Cabal, we may have seen better results. But what we saw indeed was a modest benefit in PFS because so many patients had to take interruptions in their immunotherapy and even to get high-dose steroids. And we see that compared to the placebo arm where they received Ibinevo, the triplet arm of Ibinevo and Cabal had a fewer proportion of patients getting all four doses of Ibi and much higher proportion of patients who received high-dose steroids, prednisone over 40 milligrams. And I think this points out that there's a lot of overlapping toxicity between these drugs and giving them together all up front is maybe not going to be tolerated for many patients. Yeah, I think sort of the unselected strategy of just giving everybody all drugs <clears throat> isn't going to work, but I don't think that we're giving up on triplets. There's some other, other trials going on, but this first attempt was a little bit sobering, I think, for the field in terms of, of toxicity. There are two other triplet trials going on. One is a um, a sponsored study, which is giving, it's similar to Cosmic, but different. So it's PD-1, CTLA-4, and Lenvatinib. So it's a Cosmic-like triplet. Uh, Lenvatinib, Pembrolizumab is the control arm in this trial. And then interestingly, it's also uh, Pembro, Lenvatinib, and Belzutifan, a HIF inhibitor. And we're about to talk about that data. So similar to Cosmic, but different. Very large trial, over 1,600 patients. It's accrued, and we should know in a couple of years 
And then the second triplet is actually an adaptive trial that Tian Zhang from UT Southwestern is leading through the cooperative groups, which takes ipinevo induction. And for patients who don't have progression or a CR, randomizes them to add in cabozantinib or not. So it's sort of this adaptive triplet, if you will. Interesting trial. I think it's coming to the end of its accrual. And again, probably in the next year or so, we'll have some data about that. So variations on a theme, but I don't think we're done with uh, triplets yet. And then let's finish up quickly talking about belzutifan. I've alluded to it a couple of times. Belzutifan is a HIF2-alpha inhibitor. HIF2-alpha is a transcription factor that's upregulated in clear cell kidney cancer on the basis of VHL and activation. It's upstream of VEGF and the VEGF receptor, which we've targeted for decades. And it's really the first transcription factor to be targeted in cancer, to my knowledge. We saw some data um, at ESMO about monotherapy belzutifan compared to everolimus in refractory kidney cancer, largely third and fourth line, large 750 patient trial. Everolimus was the control as sort of a, a, a somewhat dated but reasonable standard of care. And what was seen was a progression-free survival advantage, hazard ratio 0.75. Interestingly, the medians are the same at 5.6, but these curves split quite dramatically just after the median. Overall survival was not reached at a fairly mature but not final secondary analysis. So Vincent, Maybe just your top line impressions of these data. Absolutely. When I look at these curves, the curves are very similar up until the median, and then they split quite dramatically, as you said, Ryan. And so what that tells me is that there are many patients who don't respond to belzutifan, first of all, but also that some patients who do respond are having actually a relatively durable response to belzutifan, even in the third or fourth line setting. And this trial was overall positive for the primary endpoint of progression-free survival. Overall survival did not reach significance, although the data is still ongoing. And so I think this is an important option for patients, but it's important for patients to know that not everyone responds. Yeah, I agree. I think there's clear activity to this agent. I think it's uh, you know recapitulated what was seen in single-arm trials. Not a massive difference, and I think this is just the start of the Belzutifan story certainly not the end. I expect it to get FDA approved. And I think it'll get widely used in part because it's a really well-tolerated drug. Anemia is a prominent on-target side effect. Hypoxia can be seen and then some other fatigue and other side effects. But compared to the TKIs, I think it's very well-tolerated. There were actually some quality of life differences in this trial. Um, and so I think we're going to see this drug widely used. And then maybe let's end with some of the combo data. There was combination belzutifan TKI data presented at ESMO as well. In the refractory setting with cabozantinib response rate of 31%, and maybe more impressively in the frontline setting in combination with cabozantinib response rate of 70%, although a, a large favorable risk patient population. So sort of last comment on where you think belzutifan-based combinations will end up in RCC. This is really interesting data. And especially in the frontline setting, we have not seen overall response rates this high for non-immunotherapy combinations. So really intriguing, especially for those patients who cannot receive IO for some reason or the other, for example, getting high-dose steroids already for an immune condition. So it's important to point out the caveat, this is a non-randomized trial and confirmatory larger trials are needed. You pointed out, Brian, the first-line triplet combination, which is including Valzutifan in that triplet with Lebadnib and Pembrolizumab. There's an ongoing second and refractory line setting with lenvatinib plus belzutifan. So we'll see how those randomized trials pan out. 
yeah, more to come in terms of Belgida fan-based combos. Um, we've been talking about clear cell kidney cancer, both in the frontline and refractory space, NCCN guidelines, which I think are going to change coming up, recommend doublet-based therapy really across risk groups, ipinevo added important intermediate risk. But there's a lot of options sort of for kidney cancer and, and really a growing list of options. And I think the takeaway just to summarize is that um, an immune-based doublet is the standard of care for frontline kidney cancer. Again, there's a lot of pros and cons to the different approaches, but learning a regimen and learning how to give it is probably the most important thing. Um, triplets may be coming, although the first foray wasn't successful. And for sure, belzutafan-based therapy, I think, is going to be part of kidney cancer in the future. I think belzutafan will find a home, moreover, in the front or second line setting in combo rather than the refractory setting where it'll be now, but certainly sort of an exciting time uh, in kidney cancer with lots of drug development. So thanks, everyone, for your attention, and, and we look forward to the next session as well. Hi, I'm Brian Reaney. Joining me is my colleague, Vincent Shu. Welcome back to the second part of our series, and we're going to discuss some clinical case scenarios about various IMDC risk groups and patient disease and treatment considerations while we're using therapy in advanced kidney cancer. So I'll present the first case. This is a 60-year-old female who presents with weight loss and right-sided flank pain. On exam, uh, she has this flank pain and a CT scan ultimately shows a 10-centimeter renal mass. Fortunately, she does not have distant clinical metastases at that point, undergoes nephrectomy for localized disease, and it shows a PT3A clear cell um, kidney cancer. Um, this is prior to any adjuvant therapy available, so the patient doesn't get any therapy, just scans. And unfortunately, surveillance scans after two years shows some new pulmonary nodules that are biopsy proven to be metastatic clear cell kidney cancer. Patient maintains a good performance status, um, has a hemoglobin of 13.6, neutrophil platelet count, really normal labs at this point, normal serum calcium, normal uh, serum LDH. Uh, so Vincent, let me ask you about this. This is a, a woman who's otherwise healthy, has two years total recurrence of relatively low volume lung disease. By IMDC risk, she would be favorable because she doesn't have any risk factors in terms of clinical or laboratory factors. How would you uh, think about approaching this patient? Thank you, Brian. The first thing to know about IMDC favorable risk, I think, is that it's a very heterogeneous group. And favorable risk includes patients like her who really had a relatively slow disease course, maybe slowly growing lung metastases. And it also includes some other patients who may already be symptomatic from their disease. And so when I see a favorable risk metastatic patient, the first thing I ask myself is, how urgent is it for this person to get on systemic therapy? And as you've shown, Brian, uh, there are many patients with IMDC favorable risk who could be safely observed with active surveillance, sometimes for a long time. And additionally, some patients may benefit from metastasis-directed therapy, whether that's excision or radiation metastases or cytoreductive nephrectomy these strategies could keep patients off systemic medication uh, for some time for patients who want to do that. Otherwise, for patients who do need treatment, I really dichotomize patients based on whether they're symptomatic or soon to be symptomatic from their metastases. If they need a relatively quick debulking of the tumor, I reach for the IOTKI combinations. These combinations, whether it's axpipembril or linvatinib plus pembrolizumab or capozantinib plus nivolumab, all have high disease control rates and high partial response rates, overall response rates, uh, and let patients have recovery and improvement from their cancer symptoms. 
patients who are asymptomatic, I also give the option of ipilimumab plus nivolumab, which may allow some patients to experience some durability in their response, and in some cases, even treatment-free survival, which is a little bit less seen with the IOTKI combinations. And in all other patients, really any doublet is a reasonable option, whether it's IOIO or IOTKI. And selected patients, especially those who have either a very slow angiogenically-driven disease course or who have some type of contraindication to immunotherapy, may still be candidates for a single-agent TKI if a favorable risk. Yeah, I think this is the group with the most options, right? I think surveillance and local therapy like SBRT is still very much a part of how to approach these patients. I mean, what I tell patients is, listen, I love treating kidney cancer, but a lot of patients don't need it. They don't need systemic therapy or they don't need it right away. And, and those drugs will be there when they when they do. So I think, I think the field has sort of um, adopted that approach more and more over the years. And I agree with your comments that, you know, there are various groups, even, you know, favorable risk, which is considered more angiogenic driven, still responds to immune therapy, you know, and Nipinevo still has a high CR rate in that population. And, and we'll talk about biomarkers in a bit, but we're, we're clinically selecting patients. We'd love to, to biologically select them, but we're not quite there yet. Um, we have data from subsets in favorable risk. Again, it's about 20 or 30% of the IO doublet trials. None have shown an overall survival advantage, which I think is what opens up the many options for this patient population. And I think otherwise they've sort of mirrored the ITT populations with higher response rates for the IOTKIs, et cetera, and maybe more of a tail of the curve with Ipinevo. But this group is debated probably even more, you know, than the larger population when we're talking about IO, IO versus IOTKI. Um, Vince, I'll turn it over to you to present case two. Absolutely. Our second case is a 57-year-old woman who initially presented with hypertension with a blood pressure of 149 over 95 and was diagnosed after an exam and imaging with clear cell RCC. She had a total right nephrectomy, which actually caused improvement in her blood pressure, which can sometimes happen due to changes in the renal vasculature. And surveillance scans after 11 months showed pulmonary nodules greater than 2 centimeters with biopsy confirming metastatic clear cell RCC. The rest of her presentation is notable for a good performance status of Karnavsky 90% and a hemoglobin of 8.9, neutrophil count of 4.8, and platelets of 260,000. So essentially a somewhat low hemoglobin. She has anemia and a slightly high calcium of 12. LDH was also a little bit elevated at 430. So Dr. Meany, this patient is a little bit sicker than our first patient and has several IMDC risk factors. How would you approach treating this patient? I think, um, yeah, I think IMDC is valuable from a prognostic standpoint. I think we, we make a mistake when we use it as a predictive tool, but I agree, you know, this, the patient's degree of anemia and degree of hypercalcemia is, I think, you know, a bit surprising given their volume of disease, although we don't sort of have all the details, but as I'm approaching, um, kidney cancer in general, or IMDC, intermediate at risk and poor. Um, I consider histology. So there's some great data with it being Evo in the patients with sarcomatoid RCC, which, as you know, is a growth pattern uh, that occurs across subtypes of kidney cancer. It's generally more aggressive in that it's less responsive to VEGF-targeted therapy, but actually more responsive to immune therapy. In fact, in the Ipinevo um, subset of those patients, the complete response rate was almost 25% in that sarcomatoid subset. So 
any patient with sarcomatoid features, I tend to get Epping Evo too. Um, if they have oligometastatic disease, I might consider local therapy, although I think that's less applicable to this group than it was to our favorable risk patient. And then, as you said, I tend to be an IOTKI user. I think as patients accumulate risk factors, they generally accumulate burden of disease and symptomatic disease or the potential thereof. And so I'm swayed by higher response rates and longer PFS, but I'll perfectly admit that it be Nevo, which is approved in this population, is a great treatment and has, if you can get through the upfront toxicity, has potential uh, better durability of response and longer term benefits. And I have a feeling we're going to be debating this forever um, because there probably isn't going to be other data to clarify. But again, as I stated before, it's great to have different options for these patients. Um, and, you know, familiarity with the regimen and with the TKI and how to dose and how to hold and all that uh, is extremely important when you're thinking about um, this patient population. So maybe just to summarize sort of metastatic first-line kidney cancer and IMDC favorable, do not forget about surveillance or uh, metastasis-directed therapy, which is largely focused radiation SBRT in this point. I think maybe VEGF are TKI alone in selected patients, although I'll have to say I'm a believer that you need immune therapy to cure patients, and I, I don't give VEGF RTKI to very many patients unless they have a contraindication. And then otherwise, I think any of the doublets are reasonable. And I think the same considerations apply to intermediate and poor. Sometimes there's an arbitrary dividing line between uh, these patient groups, but I think you would lead more towards more immediate systemic therapy and certainly one of the, uh, one of the doublets in the intermediate and poor risk population. And then real quickly, we're going to end up talking about biomarkers. Vince, I'll turn it over to you to, to talk about sort of the big picture of where we are with biomarkers in RCC. Thank you, Brian. I think the main thing to know about biomarkers in RCC is that we're not quite there yet. We have some very limited clinical biomarkers, including PDL1 status, which unfortunately has not consistently shown predictive value for immunotherapy across clinical trials. And part of that is the fact that the PDL1 biomarker has many different forms, sometimes testing the tumor cells, sometimes looking at the tumor microenvironment. And I don't think we've gotten the PDL1 biomarker quite right yet for clinical use. And as you alluded to, Brian, the IMDC risk score has been used to try to select patients for different therapies, although it's really quite imperfect. And the components of the IMDC risk score are really surrogates for much more complicated biology. And even patients with favorable risk can have great responses to immunotherapy, whereas some patients with poor risk can have great response to TKI. And so we really need to do more to understand the biology, which includes work, Brian, that you've really pioneered. Yeah, thanks. And so I'll just, just finish talking about some work we've done sort of at Vanderbilt and otherwise. So um, the Emotion 151 study was actually a large phase three of Bevacizumab and Atezolizumab. It didn't reach clinical endpoints for FDA approval, but the greatest thing to come out of that was this cluster designation where um, RNA-seq was done on over 800 tumors. And basically, patients were segregated into biologic buckets based on their RNA gene expression. And some were more angiogenic and some were more inflammatory, if you will. And this was really an expansion of a previous small randomized phase two that was done. And what we're trying to do is assign patients either IOIO or IOTKI based on those clusters. So we're biopsying metastatic sites, we're doing RNA sequencing, we're doing the informatics to assign cluster to an individual patient, which is quite challenging, by the way, and then treating them with a standard of care regimen. And what we hope is that enrichment of the patient population will lead to better clinical outcomes. We're not giving any investigational drugs here, 
we're just using uh, novel tools to select patient, patients better. I don't think this will be the, the final word in this. I think this is just a trial to look at the operations of it. Can we do it? Can we biopsy metastatic sites? Can we do all the informatics, et cetera? And then we hope to build on this with novel drugs, looking at other clusters, et cetera. So this is really just the first step. And it's not the only study out there. Um, there are others doing this as well. And we really hope, we all, I think we all agree, we really need biomarker-based studies uh, and ways to select patients because right now it's, it's very empiric. And just to wrap up, um, as we stated before, immune-based doublets are initial standard of care for advanced kidney cancer. The role of monotherapy, be it immune therapy or TKI, I think is undefined. I really only use it in patients who have absolute contraindications to one or the other. An area we didn't talk about was duration of therapy, be it the immune component or the TKI component. There are some efforts going on to look at that, but they're generally small single-arm studies. And I think uh, we as a field need to figure out how to get patients enough therapy, but not too much. Chronic TKI therapy will wear patients out. And we just need a better strategy about holding therapy or stopping at certain time points. And there are trials ongoing, but it's been very difficult to study. In terms of biomarkers, as mentioned, we don't have anything that's clinically useful that we use in all patients. A lot of investigative efforts going on. And, and I think we all agree um, that uh, instead of empiric application of these regimens, we'd love a biomarker-based approach uh, that hopefully we'll have uh, at some point in the future. And that really leads into a discussion of, of triplets, as we talked about before, that I think it's clear that indiscriminate application of, of more drugs in, in these triplets um, may not be effective based on toxicity. And so, again, it comes back to patient selection, which is now clinical, but we hope can be uh, biologic moving forward. Thanks for your attention. Hello again, my name is Brian Reaney, and I'm joined by Dr. Vincent Chu and Meryl Yoronga, a patient advocate. And in this final part, we're going to discuss perspectives on the impact of adverse events on patient quality of life and how both patients and clinicians can partner to ensure early identification of adverse events uh, and prop management to hopefully preserve and improve quality of life. So Meryl, talk to us about what's important to patients who are about to start systemic therapy. So I think, you know, the doc's perspective, we're trying to shrink tumors, we're, we're looking at scans, you know, that's sort of where our focus is. But talk to us about what you think as a patient uh, and for the patient community in general, what the goals are uh, and the priorities for systemic therapy. Well, beginning therapy is 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 pretty terrifying because you're obviously, of course, wanting to have stabilized disease and shrinking tumors and stuff just like you guys. But we also have the fears of what is this going to do to my life? Um, there's there's a laundry list of side effects and adverse events, uh, depending on which type of therapy that you're you're entering into that are pretty scary. Things like you know, extreme fatigue or chronic diarrhea, um, adverse events where the immune system can can get attacked and pretty big things can uh, go on there with the, the IO therapy. And um, it's just very scary. Even, even things like your hair turning white on some TKIs, it's just like, you know, your whole world kind of gets rocked. So um, it's, it's tricky in terms of, you know, where what, what you want to see happen, of course, you you want the disease more than anything to be under control and that, you know, your life is going to go on um, and you have to kind of adjust to those different side effects that are that are coming in. What I what I tell patients and you tell me if this is true or not, is that I think 
once patients start therapy and, and understand what actual side effects they're dealing with, that that's almost better than right before therapy when there's a huge laundry list, as you say, of all the possibilities. 100%. Um, I think that was going to be my next point is that the reality of it is that most times they're very manageable. Um, you know, you still run some big risks, um, but that's the same with pretty much any kind of drug regimen. I would have liked to have been advised that, you know, just because these things are listed here doesn't mean that that's going to be what you're dealing with and that most people do find that they're, it, they're manageable side effects. Um, they, they can have some kind of impact on your quality of life, but it doesn't mean that your quality of life is gone. It, it's just adjustment and management. Sure. And I, I usually tell people, don't, don't get scared away by this list. It's, it's just meant to say, here's everything that's ever happened to any patient getting the drug. Is there any last, last question on this is, in terms of efficacy, is there one efficacy endpoint or outcome that's most important? Just control, disease control, stability. Um, for me, that's always my goal. When I have scans and I am, you know, stability is always what I'm hoping for. Uh, obviously, shrinkage and tumors going away and durable responses are great. And and don't get me wrong, that is the, you know, ultimate goal. But just stability, you know, indolence, that kind of stuff is is pretty much what patients are looking for. But it's an interesting. I've heard other patients say that. I think docs focus a whole lot more on shrinkage and CRs, and we debate each other about DPRs. But I've, I've certainly heard a lot of patients say that, you know, stability is a good thing. And if, obviously, if we can keep tumors stable for a really long time, then, then that's a good thing. Yeah. Let me ask you a specific question about sort of efficacy versus toxicity, right? That benefit-risk ratio that we we talk about on, on the doc side. Um how, how do you see that balance? Are, are you willing to have a treatment that maybe probably is less effective that's more tolerable? Or are you in the camp of, you know, I don't care how much side effects there is. I want I, I want the most efficacious treatment, whatever, again, based on whatever endpoint. I think it's really just the slipperiest slopes because, you you know, you're, you want that stability. You want pretty much at, at any cost to have it. But your life is really miserable. Your quality of life is gone and you can't, you know, do the things that you enjoy. For example, I would trade a little less toxicity for stability versus a lot more for shrinkage. It's just a very difficult question to answer, like in a black or white way. But, you know, the you, you really need both. You really, the, the, the sweet spot is both. And I think that balance changes as patients journey goes on, right? I mean, up front, it's a little different than in the second line setting and third line setting. And, and so I think, as you say, it's not, it's not one black or white answer. Okay. If you just take us through sort of your uh, kidney cancer journey, that'd be great. So in April, 2017, I was diagnosed uh, incidentally in the ER after uh, having appendicitis and uh, they saw a nine centimeter kidney tumor, my left kidney. Um, and I also was diagnosed with lesions on the lung that had to be biopsied and were positive for uh, clear cell, renal cell carcinoma as well. Um, later on, I had a brain lesion detected through an MRI that was done uh, prior to thoracic surgery. And so uh, with these, with the brain 
radiation and the nephrectomy and the lobectomy, I was considered disease-free and I was on active surveillance at that point, uh, which was up to about, I think, about 16, 17 months of that. Um, then there was some progression that was noted. It was in the like soft tissue of the peritoneal space. Um, and at that point, I sought a second opinion and then went forward with Ipinevo, standard of care. Um, I made it through three cycles of the Ipi. Um, and then was had an adverse event, hypophysitis, uh, which is, affects the pituitary gland and uh, left me with long-term and most likely permanent adrenal insufficiency. Uh, once the uh, hydrosteroids were administered and I was done with that, I went back to Nevo therapy alone, where I stayed in about another year on Nevo and uh, had some additional uh, progression and then switched to the Pembro and Axi combination, which I'm still on. That was in 2019, and I am still on that regimen today, and it is effective for me. Good for you. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. I mean, as as you say, it's overwhelming up front, and and certainly a lot a lot to go through. I think you've mentioned some of this about. Uh, ipi related toxicity. Let's maybe focus on the TKI. I know you take breaks in your dosing. It's something that I've done for years with TKIs, especially axitinib. But talk to us a little bit about how your oncologist and you handle breaks from axitinib. Um, I have a great relationship with my oncologist, and he he kind of trusts my self awareness and knowledge of what what's going on with myself, and he's kind of given me. Uh, the green light to take breaks as needed. I, I know I can feel when my body is just tired of it. <laughs> I can't, mm -hmm. the best way to explain it, my fatigue gets a little out of control. The gastrointestinal symptoms get a little out of control. And it's just, it just is a built in necessity, I believe, of this type of drug. It, it's, it's, I would say it's, it's exidinib is considered one of the least, uh, toxic or whatever TKIs, it, it's just impossible, I think, not to have breaks from it. I call it the side effect roulette because I just never know what I'm going to get. Like sometimes it is gastrointestinal. Sometimes it's the mouth and taste part. And um, I have the high blood pressure that comes and goes. Um, it's very easy to manage. I also kind of have carte blanche on that with uh, managing my blood pressure medication and everything, but sometimes I really need it. Sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm. um, fatigue is pretty much consistent, but it's so hard to pin that on anything when you're also on a, you know, immunotherapy agent and whatever comes up on the wheel, you, you manage it. And fortunately there's a lot of knowledge in the community, in the patient community that's shared about managing different side effects with feed right. and and everything and so it's it's okay so i think you know taking breaks is is extremely important in long-term tki vincent talk to us about how you manage two things one is breaks on tki the other is this concept of overlapping toxicity absolutely and meryl listening to what you're saying i think the key theme there is trust between the oncologist and the patient so your oncologist clearly trusts you to raise your hand and say when your side effects are getting worse. And that is incredibly important because time and time again, we've seen what happens when patients go too long with uncontrolled toxicity, which is that it gets worse. 
And when it gets worse, you may not end up on even getting as much treatment because you're going to need a longer break in the longer run. And so short breaks or long breaks, the patient really needs to drive the show. And, you know, we've seen that TKIs can have cumulative toxicities, like the things that you've mentioned, Meryl. Uh, diarrhea can get worse over time. Mouth problems, mucositis, loss of taste, poor appetite can get worse over time. Fatigue can kind of build up. But what we, what we also struggle with, especially with these IO-TKI combinations, is sometimes we're not sure what's causing the side effect. And that is especially the case for things like diarrhea or elevated liver enzymes, which could be either caused by the immunotherapy or it can be caused by the TKI oral medication. And in that situation, it again is a partnership between the oncologist and the patient to find out what's going on and how we can make it better. The first thing to remember is that for very mild toxicity, for example, diarrhea with one or two bowel movements a day, we don't always have to stop one or both treatments. And sometimes patients can manage if things are not too bad with Imodium or other supportive medications. But sometimes it gets worse than that. And when diarrhea is grade two, but the patient is doing okay at home, Oftentimes, what I will try to do is to stop the TKI for several days and to see if there's a quick improvement in the diarrhea. That's especially true for the shorter-acting TKIs like axitinib, where after two or three days off treatment, if things are not getting better, it's probably not the axitinib. And then at that point, if things are not getting better or even getting worse, we really need to think about, is this the immunotherapy causing toxicity? And that could sometimes require either steroids or hospitalization if the patient is doing a little bit more poorly. That's for grade two or relatively mild to moderate toxicity. There are certainly cases where the liver enzymes are very high or the diarrhea is quite severe. Patients are getting dehydrated. And in that situation, we really need to stop everything, treat presumptively with steroids, and then do the workup in parallel to find out what's going on. More than anything, we need to protect the safety of the patient and also get the patient better. And then third, find out which drug was responsible so we can prevent it in the future. I agree. It's a, it's an imperfect science, but there's a little bit of empiric holding one or the other or both and kind of letting letting sort of things play out. And obviously, if people are sick, they need steroids and attention. I think, I think that goes without saying. Well, it's been a great discussion. We're sort of running out of time, but um, I think for me, the takeaways are, you know, for the docs, find out what goals are important to the patient, right? Some some are willing to put up with more toxicity for the most efficacy and others, you know, maybe have a different balance of benefit risk in mind. And then the other main take home is about chronic TKI dosing is hard and patients need breaks. And I think they can direct that breaks because they're experiencing the side effects, not me. I usually have to talk people into the breaks early on. And then once they do it, they're so happy with it that they do it readily. Um, and I've never had a patient progress because they took too many breaks, right? It's, this is chronic therapy and taking three days off here and there is, is simply not going to affect the disease. If anything, I think it probably makes it work better. But um, a lot to learn about delivering these drugs and, and the importance of listening to patients. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.